Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our second reading is from Luke 15, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32, the parable of the prodigal and his brother. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his eldest son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your commands yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for uh, the gift of your word. We pray that by the Holy Spirit, we would hear you well. 
Uh, help us to know you better so that we might make you better known in this world. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the, uh, the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth once preached a Good Friday sermon in a prison. And he made the case that the scene on Calvary with the two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus was the first church. And in that church, you might recall that it was one repentant sinner, the one who came to Jesus' defense, the one who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then there was the other one who was furious. He was demanding that Jesus do something if he really is the Messiah. Get us down from these crosses if you even can. And Bart said to the, the, this room of convicted criminals that this is the church, you know, both repentant and unrepentant sinners, each looking at Jesus. Sinners with Jesus in the center. That's the church, he says. And this is a powerful thing. But he wonders aloud, where the obviously unrepentant sinners are in most churches. You know, most churches, and consequently most sinners, he implies, assume that what gets us in the door is our readiness to repent, uh, to change our ways, to conform ourselves to the model of the one who cried to Jesus, not just the one who yelled at him. And even if we don't know it at first, that's what we should expect, he says. But he goes on to say that if that's the case, then we're missing half the church. Right? Any church that expects its members to be implicitly or explicitly uh, having their acts together in order to come before Jesus, to experience Jesus' solidarity with them, is shortchanging itself. Where are your sinners, he asks. <laughs> now, this might explain why Bart uh, didn't do very well as a pastor. <laughs> you know, he only actually did that for, for a little while, and then he spent most of his life writing obnoxiously long books uh, with big theological words in them instead of in a congregation week in and week out. And it is, I have to admit, you know, a whole lot easier when everyone is you know, more or less on the same page and more or less well-behaved. But on the other hand, I think you might be on to something, right? And you could probably point at Luke 15, verses 1 and 2 to back it up. Luke begins this wonderful series of teachings. He sets it up. Uh, the, the prodigal is the third of three kind of similar uh, parables, and he sets them up by first telling us that the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And, and tax collectors and sinners is this kind of catch-all phrase for ne'er-do-wells. You know, these are the people your mother warned you about. And Luke is careful not to suggest that these are people who've somehow decided to get their lives in order. Right? Tax collectors and sinners still applies. And there was something about Jesus that attracted them. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to hear him. They clearly felt welcome in his presence in a way that I think it's fair to say they, they didn't feel in the presence of other religious types. You know, tax collectors and sinners seem to have a thing for Jesus. And Jesus seems to have a thing for them. And I don't think it's unfair to say that, by and large, the church has not always been a place where tax collectors and sinners flock. I mean, of course, we acknowledge that every time the church gathers, it's a gathering of sinners. But, you know, we tend to be kind of well-behaved sinners. <laughs> and I don't just mean like our congregation. I mean the church generally. The body of Christ has not always done a good job of acknowledging that having one's life in order is not 
prerequisite for Jesus' company and attention. At any rate, I haven't always done a good job of that. You know, I, I recognize the, the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees as my own. Jesus really should hang out with a better quality of people. On the other hand, I, I also know churches where the scribes and the Pharisees, the upright and rightly righteous, uh, wouldn't get very far in the door before they were made to feel decidedly unwelcome. You know, I've experienced churches where there's something kind of heroic about brokenness and sinfulness and any attempt to suggest that anything else is possible, let alone desirable, is, well, it's ill-advised. The sense is usually some, something like there, there, there's something kind of authentic about wallowing in our wretchedness, and there's not much space for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But that doesn't play well here either. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees seem to be welcome too when Jesus is around. And they may and they tend to have a bit of a harder time with his message, but they're welcome. And although Luke only tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling, it's not hard to imagine that the sinners and tax collectors started rolling their eyes at each other when the Bible thumpers showed up, right? You know, as much as I might grumble about the misbehaved, I find the insufferably upright hard to handle too. The fact is that none of these folks likely wanted the other ones around. And Jesus stands in the midst of all of them. Inviting every one of them, inviting every one of us into something new. Our convenient categories get all messed up when he's around. Jesus really does seem to have the capacity to love us just the way we are and way too much to leave us that way, however we showed up. And, and I think the thing that makes space for something new this newness to which Jesus calls us, the thing that transforms, the thing that draw, both draws us in and silences our grumbling is the fact that we are extravagantly and unconditionally loved. Whatever category we've put ourselves in or been put in or put others in, we are extravagantly and unconditionally loved. Now, the parable of the prodigal and his brother undercuts all of our assumptions, spoken or unspoken, about our, deser our, our deserving or earning of God's love or our ability to truly get away from God's love. Now, the parable begins with the, the younger brother uh, apparently doing everything he can to be unlovable. Right? I mean, it's hard to overstate that the shock uh, that Jesus' first century audience would have felt when Jesus introduces this kid who tells his dad to drop dead and give him what's going to be his. I mean, he's effectively wishing his father out of the picture. And in, in that context, familial obligations were really clear, right? Honor your father and mother is the only one of the Ten Commandments that comes with a, a condition, right? Honor your father and mother or you won't live long in the land. Now, when my, I tell my boys that, they generally roll their eyes at me, but it's in the Bible. You know, Jesus' first hearers were steeped in this highly patriarchal culture in which not only parents were to be honored, but fathers were the top of the heap in every family. And so the father's appropriate response to the son's request would be to have run the little ingrate out of the house. You know, even the sinners and tax collectors wouldn't talk to their daddies this way. And so it's even more shocking <laughs> that the father does it. He, he gives his kid his, the portion of his inheritance. 
And it's not like the little punk has a plan, right? He's not investing in an olive grove or starting a little sheep shearing business. He just takes the money and runs, right? He gets as far as away as he can. He blows the whole lot. He takes what the father gives him and wastes it until he himself is wasted. He ends up with nothing, right? Working for a pig farmer, which for a Jewish kid is about as low as you can get. He's starving to death. He's covered in pig slop. And that's when Jesus says that he came to himself. And I, I always kind of like that, right? He, he came to himself. It's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> he recognized that he was worth more than this. His rebellion wasn't worth it. And so he comes up with a plan. He, he'll go to his dad and he'll offer to be his servant. In other words, he will earn his way back into his father's favor. He'll make it things right. He'll prove his worth. He'll, he'll make amends. But Jesus says that as this good-for-nothing kid slinks home, his dad sees him on the horizon. And this is the best. The father knows it's him. He'd know that walk anywhere. And what's more, he's been watching for him waiting for this day. And he can tell that even covered in muck and rags, even from a distance, that this is his boy. And Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father was filled with compassion and ran to him. And he didn't run, which let's be clear, gentlemen did not do back in the day. Neighbors are going to talk about this display of emotion. But the father runs to him and he tackles him with a bear hug and he kisses him even though he smells and probably tastes like a barnyard. You know, the, the, the boy barely gets to start his excuses before his dad calls for a robe, the best one, <laughs> and a ring. He tells the servants to get a party started because his son was lost and is found, was dead and is alive. And, you know, suddenly we see kind of how paltry the son's coming to himself really was. You know, the most he could imagine that he was worth was doing better. <laughs> you know, the most he could imagine was that his true self wasn't meant to be starving and covered in pig dung. And I think lots of people live that way. Right? We, we, we have a culture that loves self-help. There are countless books and podcasts, YouTubers and social media influencers, organizational gurus and life coaches who are eager to tell us how to improve our lives. And I think that most of what they tell us amounts to this kid's big plan to shape up, work hard, set goals and meet them, to earn our spot in the ranks of the accomplished and the redeemed. Get ourselves out of the pig pens we've created and move into the servants' quarters. <laughs> You know, and it's not the worst idea. It's a little self-serving, but there's something sort of noble about the kid's desire to turn himself around. But I think Jesus is making clear to us that if we're going to come to our truest selves, not just come to ourselves, but come to our truest selves, if we're going to understand what we are truly worth, we don't need a better life plan. If we're going to come to our true selves, we need to know that while we are still a long way off, while we are dressed in rags and smelling like hell, while we are coming up with a great plan, God is the divine parent who will run at us, gather us up, throw a party.
We need to know that we are loved before we get our excuses out and whether or not we ever get ourselves sorted. I mean, if I'm honest, I think one of the most frustrating parts of the story is that it ends at the party. I mean, wouldn't we like to know what happened the next day? Did this kid respond appropriately? Did he understand what he'd been given? Did he truly change his ways or is the older brother right? Or maybe the fact that I'm wondering that at all is, is just evidence that I'm much more older brother than younger brother. And not just because I'm the oldest in the family and I know that younger siblings get away with everything. <laughs> but because as much as I love a good story of grace and transformation, I do have a hard time allowing that God's love is actually and truly unconditional. I know it because I'm still quick to judge people who don't act the way I think they should. I know that know it because I still struggle to let go of grudges and forgive the, with the kind of instinctive forgiveness that Jesus seems to expect of his disciples. I know it because the idea of God's love as unconditional is wonderful, but I still stumble over the fact of it. You know, for folks like us, unconditional love, maybe. But folks like them, well, gosh. And the party that the father throws is not because his delinquent son has made good. <laughs> it's not because his delinquent son has made good. It's simply the fact of him that's worth celebrating. And I think that both brothers find that impossible to believe. You know, but I understand the older brother's sense of injustice. I mean, what do you mean this kid just gets to wander home? This son of yours. <laughs> Can't even say his name or call him my brother, but this son of yours doesn't want to be lumped in with that. Now, why would he? I mean, he's worked hard. He's done what he's supposed to do. When the father says that everything I have belongs to you, it's absolutely true because the younger son's portion is gone into the hands of bartenders and the purses of working girls. The older son has been responsible. He's earned his father's approval. He's solidified his station in life. Is he supposed to believe that if he'd done none of that, that his father would love him just the same? Now, I think even those of us who talk about grace a lot have a hard time with the, the real depths of it, <laughs> with the height and length and width of it, because it collapses all of our sense of earned worthiness. And we may not even be consciously trying to justify our worthiness, but in a world that measures us by what we do amongst neighbors who whose commitment to us is based on our value to their social standing, we almost can't help ourselves. Now, a, a lot of people find it awfully hard to imagine that God delights in us, that God is ready to throw a party for us just because of the fact of us. A lot of people find it hard to imagine that without our degrees or Vancouver properties or general approval of our neighbors without anything we think we couldn't live without. I mean, maybe you are not uh, obsessed with <laughs> success and approval, but whatever it is you think you couldn't live without, God loves you without it. God wants you anyways. The older son's real anger comes from the fact that he doesn't understand that he's unconditionally loved. And this is the offense at the heart of this parable. There really isn't anything we can do or not do to be the objects of God's love for us. That's why Paul prays in the letter to the Ephesians, and by the Spirit continues to pray, I believe, that 
we would know the height and depth and length and width of God's love for us in Christ. That we would be rooted and grounded in that love. Because until we get it, then something other than the wild love of Jesus will be at the center of our lives and of our life together. Which means that whatever's at the center can be taken away. Makes things very precarious. But when we get it, when we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, then we start to understand the scope of God's love for us. And it changes everything. When we get it, we can start to do whatever we do, not as a marker of self-worth or desperate self-expression, but in the name and way of Jesus to the glory of God. We are caught up in the glory of God. And who can take that from us? When we get it, we can actually do what St. Paul says and stop looking at others the way the world does and instead start seeing them as people for whom God would cross heaven and earth, people created in God's image, objects of God's delight, those for whom God would give everything. When we get it, we can start to live not for the things that we're told matter now, but for the sake of the world as God made it and is making it again. Now, Kate shared a quote with me the other day from somebody who was making an argument for restorative justice over our current systems. If you don't know what restorative justice is, I'll encourage you to go Google it after, <laughs> afterwards. But she's arguing for restorative justice. And the person made the case that there won't be prisons in God's kingdom. So why would be, we be wholeheartedly committed to institutions that won't exist when God gets the world God wants? Why not right now, as first fruits of God's new creation, which is what we are, begin to imagine something else? Not just imagine it, but work for it. Imagine and work for a world in which God is preparing a party for those who are lost and will be found, for those who are dead but are, will be made alive. I mean, what a world that would be. Now, restorative justice is kind of a big example maybe to start with, but what if, what if that sparked our imaginations for our everyday interactions? You know, what if we allowed ourselves to begin each day in the sure and certain knowledge that whatever the day brings and whatever we bring to the day, we get to do everything out of the eternal, extravagant, world-making, world-saving love of God for us and for everyone we meet. God's love for all things. I think we'd know every day what it means to be found, what it means to be made fully alive, here and now and forever. And may it be so. Amen.
Thank you.
As we prepare to go into our time of communion, let's say together a, a new creed. We are not alone. We live in God's world. We believe in God who has created and is creating, who has come in Jesus, the word made flesh, to reconcile and make new, who works in us and others by the Spirit. We trust in God. We are called to be the church, to celebrate God's presence, to live with respect in creation, to love and serve others, to seek justice and resist evil, to proclaim Jesus, crucified and risen, our judge and our hope, in life, in death, in life beyond death. God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. Friends, the table of bread is now to be made ready. Wherever we are, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, our tables are the tables of company with Christ and all who love him. By the spurring of the Spirit, our tables are the table of sharing with the poor with whom Jesus identified himself. By the creative love of the Spirit, our tables are tables of communion with creation in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because of any goodness of your own gives you the right, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Come because he loved you and gave himself for you. Come because it is Christ himself who invites us. It's Christ, whom we remember on the night that he was betrayed, shared a final meal with his friends. And during the meal, he took a loaf. I invite you to hold whatever you've got today. He blessed it. He broke it. And he passed it to his disciples in all of their faith and fickleness and said, take and eat all of you. This is my body broken for you. Now, when the meal was finished, he took a cup. I invite you to hold whatever you've got. And he said to them, take and drink all of you, even to his betrayer. Take and drink all of you, for this is the cup of the new covenant, which is made in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, remember me. Let us pray. Send, O God, your Holy Spirit upon these gifts, whatever we have brought today, that they might be for us the body and blood of Christ. And that we might be and become the light of Christ, your love in this world. Make us first fruits of your new creation with Christ, in Christ, and through Christ, with the power and unity of the Holy Spirit. All glory and, is, and honor is God, is your God most holy, now and forever. Amen. I invite you to take and eat. These are the gifts of God for the people of God.
as we finish up, let's, uh, let's pray the prayer that's printed in your order of service together. Lord, grant that we might become what we have received, your love broken and poured out for this world. Amen. Let's join together in prayer. Before we rise from this table of joyous welcome and extravagant love, we offer our prayers for those close at hand and those far off who need the healing warmth of your embrace. For victims of war and tyranny, who have lost loved ones, homes, country. For those called to pull the trigger, who in aggression or defense are compelled to kill others. For those of our world forgotten, as our attention skips from one place to another, one crisis to the next, one distraction to yet another. For those lost on our streets, in our schools and offices, in our families, especially those who do not know they have a home to which to return. For the grieving and lonely, the wayward and confused, the saddened, the meandering, that all might know their heart's home found in you. Your everlasting truth, O oh God, your ceaseless love sees all your children's wants and knows what best for each will prove. In that promise we rest. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this is the time in our service that we commit our hearts, our hearts through our offering. Offering is our opportunity to respond to God's goodness and generosity to us, to what we have sung, prayed, and heard this morning in worship. In a tangible way, we give something now of worth to us, our offering. And as Christians, we commit to a different type of life in all that we say, all that we do, and even how we budget and commit our money. God, we take your love, we take our daily bread, we take the very blessings of this life, and so now let us give. Let's pray over these gifts together. Loving God, bless this humble offering that we collect and give this morning. You said give and it will be given to you, for in the same measure as you give, it will be given to you again. We give to you today as a response to your goodness to us. We ask that you receive our offerings and fold them into the good works in your name. May your peace be in our hearts, your grace be in our words, your love be in our hands, and your joy be in our souls. Amen. And let's close, uh, sing our closing hymn together, Voices United 636, Give to the Wind Your Fears. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you all for joining us this morning. We will sing our final blessing together and uh, then we'll have some time for some coffee hour after that. Thanks, Aiden. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever And may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord face his shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Thank you so much to everybody who has participated in our service this morning, to Aaron and Aaron and Aiden and Courtney and Doug. It's been a joy to gather with you this morning. I'll stop the recording here. <laughs>